have you ever met somebody who's just full of theories? You know, you talk to them, and they got a theory about everything, right? They got a political theory, they got government theory, they got sports theory, they got cultural theory, they got conspiracy theories, right? Just theories about everything. They really enjoy just kind of talking about their different theories and pontificating about what might be, what could be, what should be, what ought to be. And, you know, there's a place for that. That's, that's needed, actually, because it's, it's on the kind of the, the tracks of theory, that advancement is made. But if you just stay in the theory, it's really a safe harbor, you know, because the theory is the safe harbor of maybe, right? It, it may be true, it may not. You never really know until you test the theory. And so to really make a difference, you can't make a difference in the safe harbor of theory. You have to move to the risky world of reality and then put it into practice. And you know what? That's hard, isn't it? And it can be hard, especially for us as Christians, because sometimes we're really good with theory. We're good with Bible theory, theological theory, uh, discipleship theory, evangelistic theory. We're good with theory. But sometimes it's, it's that step of putting it into action that's the challenge. And, you know, God doesn't reward us for our theories. It's our deeds. And God, he's a God who doesn't just theorize, right? He doesn't look at the world and say, oh man, the world is lost. I love the world. And so I love the world so much, I'll just theorize about what maybe could be, should be, ought to be. No, God loves the world so much that he does something. He sends his son, right? And so as we come to and continue our story of Queen Esther and the weight of the crown, what we see is we're not the only ones who struggle with just making theory reality. Let's go ahead and check it out this morning. Uh, the story of Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Esther 4, 1 through 17, it reads, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king in 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So, pick up the story here with Mordecai and just kind of refresh our memories about where we met Mordecai and who Mordecai is. You know, he's one of the main characters that we see in the story of Esther. And when you meet him, he's really not that impressive of a guy, at least when you talk from a faithful perspective, right? He's a Jew living in Persia. God had long ago said through his prophet Isaiah that the Jews, now that the Babylonian exile is over, that they're to return home to Jerusalem. He's unfaithful. He's one of the rebellious ones who stayed in Persia. In addition to that, he has his adopted daughter, Esther, and, well, he told her to go by Esther. Hey, let's just keep your Jewish identity a secret. Let's just have everyone think you're Persian. That'll be way more safe. It'll be way more convenient, way more comfortable for all of us. So let's just go that route. And so when you meet Mordecai, he's not this model of faith, right? Not, not by any stretch, really. Um, but something happens, and we're beginning to see a little bit of growth in Mordecai. Because when you meet him, it's five years previous, and now five years have passed since, uh, since Esther married Xerxes. And in those five years, well, at the end of it, what happens? Uh, well, now there's this decree issued, because we meet another guy, Haman. And Haman, he gets this place of honor, and he wants all people to bow down in front of him. The the king issues a decree. Everybody bows before Haman. Everybody except Mordecai. Mordecai says, hey, I'm a Jew. I believe in the one true God. I'm not bowing before any man, much less an Agagite, right? And so he doesn't bow. Haman gets furious. He goes to the king. He's very slick in the way he does it. Now there's a decree issued. A date is set for the destruction and the extermination of the Jews. Historians tell us that up to about a million Jews might have been living in Persia at that time. So, I mean, you look at it. One man doesn't bow. Up to a million people have to die. Seems a little bit of overkill, right? I mean, things escalate real quickly. One guy, one million, doesn't seem quite fair, very equitable, but this is what's in place. And Mordecai hears this, and he sees it. I mean, he's got the decree, and word's getting out, and it just tears him up, right? And so he puts on sackcloth, he puts ashes on his head, and he goes out into the middle of the city, right in front of the king's gate, and he's just mourning. And there's this public mourning. And the Bible says that he lets out this loud and bitter cry, I mean, everybody can see it. He is now identifying himself with God's people. This guy who, when we met him, hey, let's keep it a secret. No one needs to know. Now, all of a sudden, he's telling royal officials, and in front of everyone, he is identifying with God's people, and he is mourning bitterly. So what we're seeing here is some incredible growth, really, when you think about it. Some incredible growth in his faith, because he's gone from silent to speaking, from hiding to broadcasting, from passive to active. And so Mordecai, he can relate to those of us who maybe were a little more timid in our faith, maybe a little more quiet, a little more silent. 
And one of the things that we see through this, I think gives us great encouragement, is that God activates silent spectators and he uses them to take stands and to make disciples. And so if you say, you know, I'm a little more timid, I'm a little more quiet, I'm a little more reserved, like no one really knows, I live kind of a comfortable life. God activates you. He's going to activate you. He can do that. And so Mordecai, he's taking this public stand with everyone watching. He's mourning publicly at the king's gate. And so he's not allowed through the king's gate to enter the king's gate to talk to the king. Why? Because the king only wants to see happy people, right? He wants to hear about all the victories in his kingdom, all the good things. Nobody clothed in sackcloth is getting through the king's gate to talk to the king, much less a Jew when this order is written. And so all of a sudden, it looks as if there is no way, right? There's this, they're living in darkness now, and it doesn't seem like there's any light, because what the Jewish people need is a mediator who is able to approach the king and try to reconcile the Persian kingdom with the people of God, but you're looking at it, you're thinking, who's going to get there? Right? Who's going to have access to the king that the king would hear? Because the king doesn't want to hear the sob stories. And the thing is, this king, he doesn't even know what's going on, okay? He's kind of clueless, right? I mean, Haman's come to him with this slick plan. He just kind of, here's my ring, go for it. Yeah, you can do it. He doesn't even know who the people are. Haman didn't even elaborate on that. He just said, hey, there's some people out there. Sometimes we think that people in leadership, they just know everything. They don't always know everything. This king, he doesn't know everything that's going on. He's just signed off on stuff. Things are happening, whatever. He's comfortable. He's happy. He's powerful. He's wealthy. He's good. He doesn't know what's taking place. And the, so the Jewish people, they need someone who can go to the king on their behalf. But it doesn't seem like there's a mediator who's able to do that. And so here's Mordecai, and he is weeping, and he is wailing, and he is uh, just mourning bitterly. And it's not just him. It says, as the, as the decree goes out throughout Persia, all the Jews, many of the Jews who are hearing it, begin to weep and begin to mourn because they're no, they know their faith, or their fate. It's sealed. Now, we kind of struggle with this a little bit in the West, you know, this public mourning. Uh, we, we much prefer just kind of keeping things just kind of quiet to ourselves, right? I mean, now, you know how it is, right? How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Fine, fine, fine. We're all fine. That's great. Meanwhile, the two people who are so fine, you know, one's got marriage issues. The other's got health issues. There's job issues going on over here. There's all kinds of struggles. But what do we say? We're fine. Because that's just how we are in the West. In Bible culture and in some cultures in the East, it's not that way. You go through hard times, and they tell you they're going through hard times just in their clothing, Right? They, t- they change clothing. They put ashes on themselves. They go out. I've, I've seen in Africa where people are just wailing and mourning the loss of a loved one. And you see it just publicly for everybody. And then the community comes and they gather around. And this, this is what happens in some cultures. Not so much in our culture, right? We're rugged individualists here. And so, you know, we're, we're fine. And we put on that face, that game face. And so um, there's a challenge in this for us. I want, to, I want to give just a couple reasons why uh, public mourning and grieving together is really healthy. And one, it means you're being honest with each other, right? It means you're being honest with your family, with your friends, your church family, your impact group. Whoever you're being honest about the struggles and just the realities of life. We're called to weep with those who are weeping. And it's hard to weep if you don't know someone else is weeping, you know? 
And so this, it allows that. And, and when you have that authenticity about you, and you're just kind of real and genuine, you're able to say, here are my struggles, that actually begins to kind of breed authenticity in others, where other people think, you know what, I can actually be real with you. I don't, I don't have to like play a game. I can, I can tell you how I'm hurting, how I'm struggling. And so it kind of has that effect. Another thing, God weeps. You know, God is a God who weeps and a God who grieves. And you see it publicly with God. Uh, the first example you see of God grieving is in Genesis chapter 6. He's grieving. He's distressed because he's made humanity. And he's looking at sinful humanity who he created and has been fallen and broken from his grand design for them. And he weeps over the fact that he even made humanity. It breaks his heart what we became. And then you, you fast forward, you see Jesus. And Jesus is one who weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. As he looks over the city, he weeps. He weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus. He knows he's going to raise him, but he weeps over the state of Lazarus in that moment. God is a God who weeps. And you know, by the way, men, uh, Jesus is as masculine as you get, okay? So this is not like the feminization of men to weep. Jesus is masculine as you get. He weeps. We, we can be masculine men who still grieve. It's, it's okay. Uh, and lastly, you know, when you mourn publicly and you grieve together, you're inviting other people to know you and to love you and to meet you right where they're at. It's actually a gift to others, you know, because you're inviting them into your struggle. And then you're allowing them to use their gifts and, and, and how God has wired them to minister to you and to serve you. It's a gift to others to allow them in. And so one of the lessons that I think we need to learn here in, in the West is learning to grieve together, learning to grieve together. We see that here in Mordecai and grieving and mourning when we take all of our hurts and all the weight and all the pain of life and we bring it to the throne of God. Well, that's an act of worship, just like singing and rejoicing is an act of worship. And so as you read through the Psalms, many of the Psalms are lament Psalms where the people of God just cry out and express their sadness and express their hurt and express the struggles of life. And this is Mordecai. He's, he's mourning. They're in a dark place. Who's the mediator who can go before the king to try to reconcile the Jewish people to the Persian kingdom? And so in his mourning, we actually see his faith activating and there's something about faith, you know, that is active. Uh, faith is an internal conviction that results in an external action. Okay? Let me say that again. Faith is an internal conviction that results in an external action. Right? Faith always produces action, true faith. Uh, let me just give you an example, right? So if you go to a pool, okay, and let's just say like, there's this pool, and by the pool, there's, there's this little guy, and he's got his swimming diaper on, you know, and he's got these little ducky floaties on his arms, and maybe his goggles, and, and he's looking there, and he's just standing on the edge, and he just looks terrified, right? And there in the pool is like, Dad, and Dad's got his arms up. It's like, come on, son, jump. I'll catch you. I'll catch you. How do you know if the kid has faith that the dad will catch him? If he's like a genius, and he says, hey, Dad, faith? You know, the Greek word is pistis, and it means this, this, this. No, 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 that doesn't do anything. You know the kid has faith if he jumps in, right? That's faith. 
And sometimes, you know, we don't know where Mordecai starts out. Uh, was he this, did he have faith before? Or did he not? I don't know. Uh, he probably would have said he believed in God. The demons believe in God. That's not a very high bar, okay? Demonic faith is simply belief. That's not a high bar. True faith, it's, it's an internal conviction that results in an external action. It's, it's, it changes who we are. We become more like Jesus. And so the question for all of us, really, is how are we becoming more like Jesus? What steps do we need to take uh, in our walk with the Lord to see that faith being activated. And we see that in Mordecai. He starts as this guy, and nobody would have even known. He's just blending in. He's just hiding out with all the Persians. And now faith is getting activated, and everybody knows. Maybe the, maybe the step you need to take is just, hey, I've, I think the Bible's good, but I've never really read it. Well, the activation, to activate that, okay, I'm going to begin to read the Bible. I'm going to study it. Maybe, maybe you know, the only time you've really ever prayed is if you're in a jam. You know, things are tough, I pray. But other than that, you know, I don't really have this life of prayer. I mean, your step, I, I need to begin to pray. Maybe uh, you have no one in your life who you say, you know, people come around side me and they encourage me and they build me up and they, they stimulate me to, to love and good deeds and all the one another's that we see in scriptures. And so you need to be involved in an impact group or at least a, a, a community of people who just will come alongside you and pray for you and encourage you and live that life of accountability. Maybe you say, hey, you know, I've, I've always heard, like, you know, we're going to make disciples and the Great Commission. I'm all for that, but I've never really intentionally invested into anyone and ever made a disciple. Like, that's the step. You, you get out of the world of theory and you enter the risky reality of the world and, and you do something. That's faith. Faith produces action. That's just what faith does. It produces action. James said it this way. Faith without works is dead. It was just a theory, right? And some of us live that way. It's a theory. It sounds good on paper. Like I read the truth of the Bible, it all sounds really good. I think it'd probably work. But to live that way, that's so countercultural. I don't know that I can really do that. And so we, we shrink back. But faith says, no, I'm going to take action. Well, Mordecai is taking action, and now the story turns to Esther. She's invited into the story because word gets to Esther that Mordecai is at the gate. And you can imagine, right, the eunuchs, hey, have you heard about the guy at the gate? I mean, he's losing his mind out there. He's covered in sackcloth and ashes, and he's wailing bitterly, and it's terrible. Yeah, this guy's name's Mordecai. And Esther is deeply burdened by this, right? What's going on with dad? And so sends a note. Hey, you know, you, can you go find out what's going on? And here's, uh, well, first he, she sends clothes. Get, let's get him out of the sackcloth. Let him put on some real clothes here. Send him that. And what does he say now? Now's not the time to be wearing that. Now, now's the time for mourning. And so he turns down the clothes and then she's bothered. Okay, well, let's, why? Why is it such a time for mourning? And sends the servant back. And then Mordecai explains to him everything that's going on. Well, here's, here's what's happening. Uh, here's the edict that's been signed, the, the extermination of the Jews. Here's the amount of money that uh, Haman is going to promise to put into the king's treasury and all this. Now, understand something. Behind all of this is a demonic force, okay? The, 
Satan and his demons, they've always tried to, for the destruction of God's people. That's the goal, right? The destruction of God's people. And you see it all the way back in, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, right? What's the goal? The destruction of God's people. You move forward, Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the goal? The destruction of God's people. You move forward to Egypt and Pharaoh. What's the goal? The destruction of God's people. Babylon, the exile. What's the goal? The destruction of God's people. Persia, the goal? The destruction of God's people. You fast forward to uh, Jesus and Herod, and what does Jesus or Herod do? He wants all the baby boys in Bethlehem killed, the destruction of God's people. You move forward to the church age, and what happens? You have the persecution of the church, and now even through today, you have the martyrdom of the saints. It's the destruction of God's people, and behind it is not simply men like Haman, yes, but more than that. We wrestle not simply against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and demons and Satan. And so that's what's happening. I mean, this, this is demonic, right? One man doesn't bow, so a million people need to die. This is demonic. And here's the thing. At this point in the book, Esther's been totally passive, you know? Every time you've met her, it almost seems like someone else is making the decisions for her. Mordecai tells her what to do, she does it. The eunuch tells her what to do as far as when she's going to meet the king, she does it. Xerxes, she does it. It's, it's, it's all the decisions are being made for her. And she's been in this palace now for five years, married for five years, and nobody knows she's a Jew, all right? Do you see how, how she would have had to blend in for five years if nobody knows? I mean, nobody has seen her reading the Torah, right? Nobody's just kind of walked by, oh, Esther's in there reading the Scripture. No, no one's seen that. No one's heard Esther pray to the one true God. Nobody, nobody's heard that. No, nobody's seen Esther go through the law of Moses and offer the prescribed sacrifices and all these things. Nobody's done, no, no, hadn't seen that. The dietary laws, nope, she's violated all of those. Even more, as the Persian queen, you can better believe that she was taking part in all the pagan festivals and everything of the day. She wouldn't just be able to sit back and not do it. So she's just blended in. She's no picture of faith. She's a picture of comfort, convenience, safety. She's like a lot of us sometimes. We just prefer our faith to be private and just live a quiet, comfortable, safe life. But now, she gets worse. And she's going to have to do something now, right? She, she can continue to hide out and try to escape from what's coming to the Jews, or she can do something. And in verse 10, well, you have a glimmer of hope that maybe she's beginning to take some action. Because what does she do? She commands her servant. And if you're reading the story of Esther, you're like, all right. Here's Esther leading. She's commanding somebody. This is kind of getting exciting here. She's stepping up. But it's not really that much when you look at it because she commands the servant to go back to Mordecai to tell Mordecai, hey, this is terrible what's happening. I really wish I could do something. But no one's allowed just to go to the king. I mean, if you go to the king uninvited, you're dead unless he decides to hold out his golden scepter to you. And listen, the king's not going to hold out his golden scepter to me. He hasn't wanted to see me for the last 30 days. Right? So... You know, by the way, this also tells us something about Esther's marriage. You know, sometimes we want to read the book of Esther and make it into this fairy tale. Here's this poor Jewish girl, and she marries this powerful Persian king, and it's just wonderful. She's invited into the palace, and she wins his heart, and now they're just walking through the gardens hand in hand, looking lovingly into each other's eyes and singing songs as they go, and oh, it's just beautiful. No, no, no. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. He hasn't wanted to see her for 30 days because he's got a harem of all these other women, right? This is not a marriage that anybody wants to be a part of. This is not a marriage that anybody wants for their daughter. This is not a good marriage. It's not a healthy marriage. He's an unbeliever, polytheistic, egomaniac. This is not a good marriage. And so this is what she's in, though. And Mordecai, he hears this, oh, I can't go. I'd, I'd like to go. I'd like to do something, but I can't. I'll be dead. And so Mordecai responds and says, hey, don't think to yourself that you can just stay back and sit back and keep quiet and that you'll be all right. You'll be found out too. And when you are, death will come to you. But if you decide you want to be quiet, just know this, liberation will come from another place. And then he says that line that we all know in the book of Esther is probably the most well-known, that, hey, who knows? Maybe you're in the kingdom for such a time as this. And we read that, and sometimes we want to read it as if God said it. You know, God says, hey, you're in the kingdom. I put you in the kingdom for this time. Listen, she's not supposed to be in the kingdom. She's not supposed to be in Persia. She's not supposed to be married to this guy. She's not supposed to have a marriage like this. She's not supposed to be quiet and just hiding out. That's not who she's supposed to be. That's not who she's called to be. We want to romanticize it and make this a fairy tale. But listen, she hasn't been faithful. This isn't where she's supposed to be, and this isn't who she's supposed to be with. But these are the choices that she's made and some of the choices that have been made for her because of family decisions and everything to remain in Persia. And you know what? We can relate to that, can't we? That sometimes we get in situations because we've made poor choices. And we know, if we're honest with ourselves, well, I'm here because I did this dumb thing. And now what am I going to do? And other times, it's dumb things that other people did around us, and we live in the backwash of it, right? Well, I'm stuck here because this person sinned, and now I'm feeling the effects of that sin. Just because Mordecai says, who knows you're in the kingdom for such a time as this, does not mean she's supposed to be in the kingdom. But you know what it does mean? It means that God can work even when we're in places we're not supposed to be in. That you have a decision now to make. Maybe you haven't been faithful in the past, but you have a decision now. I can be faithful now. I can be faithful today. I wasn't faithful yesterday. I made some poor choices, but I can be faithful today. And that's the decision that Esther has to make. No, she hasn't been this picture of faith, this model of faith, but now she has a decision. Is she going to be faithful or not? And you know what? It's oftentimes that tension creates that intention to change. You know, it's funny, because when you go through really hard things, painful things in life, you might say something like, man, I'd never wish that on anybody. I wouldn't even want, like, my worst enemy to have to go through this. It's been so hard, it's been so painful, it's been so terrible. And then, you know, as the years go by, you look back on that painful, hard, difficult moment. You say, but you know what? Man, God really showed up in that time. And during that, like, it, it kind of renewed my faith, and I, I began to walk with him deeper. Your faith was activated, right? Maybe it tra there's this transformation that takes place in your marriage or something, or with the relationship with one of your kids or something like this. It was really hard. It was really painful. You wouldn't want anyone to have to go through it. But you look on the backside of it, and you say, well, God really showed up, right? And, and you see that promise that God works for the good of those who love him, that God is a God 
who even in the midst of sinful choices, in the midst of things that aren't right, he can still reach in and he can redeem it for our good and for his glory. It is oftentimes that tension of pain that creates this intention to change. And so that's what's happening here for Esther. She hears this, and there's this moment of tension. What's she going to do now that she's received this word from Mordecai? And man, she steps up, right? She becomes this leader, and this is who we think of when we think of Esther. We think of this part going forward, because she responds, okay, tell, uh, tell Mordecai what to do. Now she's given orders to her adopted dad. She says, here's what you need to do, Mordecai. You got to get, get all the people, all the Jews in Susa, have them gather together. Why? Because what she's going to do might cost her her life. And she wants God's people gathering together on her behalf. And she says, tell them to fast. Fast for three days. I'll be fasting too, but make sure they're fasting. Now, when you go through the Bible, whenever you see God's people fasting, it's almost always because they're about to do something really dangerous or really difficult. Okay, right after that comes something really hard that they're called to. Um, Another thing, that whenever you see fasting in the scripture, it is almost always accompanied with prayer. Prayer and fasting, they seem to go hand in hand. What's interesting here, curious, strange, prayers omitted. We don't see Esther telling Mordecai, hey, tell the Jewish people to gather together to pray and fast. It's simply to fast. Maybe prayer's inferred. Maybe we should just infer that. Like, okay, he's wanting the people to pray too. She is. Uh, maybe not. Maybe she's just kind of immature in her faith, right? And she hasn't really been faithful with God for a while, and she's kind of recollecting, okay, what can we do? How, how can we approach God? And yeah, hey, I remember fasting, but she kind of forgets all about prayer because, well, she really hasn't been one who's prayed herself. We don't really know. We don't know if prayer's accompanied with this. Kind of like to think so, but it's, it's not in the text for us. But what we do see, I believe, is some growth, is some action, Right? She's not just going to hide back and try to live a quiet, safe, convenient, comfortable life anymore. She's going to approach the king. And so you see this growing, this faith activating. And she has this great line, hey, if I perish, I perish. And so up to this point, it seems as if her greatest treasure in life has been her life. No, that she's just wanted to live a quiet, comfortable, safe life. So she's just going to blend in. She's going to be Persian. But now, at this point, when the stakes are high and the tension is rising, it seems like there's this intention to change. Because perhaps her greatest treasure is becoming God. And when God is your greatest treasure, what happens? You're free. People can't bully you. They can't intimidate you. They can't pressure you. Why? Because you reach this place of Esther, which is like, hey, if I live, I live. But if I die, I die. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. I've just got to do what's right. And so the challenge for us is to truly make God our greatest treasure. You know, when when you look at the story of Esther, at this point, there's this gigantic conflict because there's the Persian Empire and there's the people of God. And the people of God need a mediator. 
someone who can go to the Persian king on their behalf and try to reconcile the Persian empire with the people of God. But there's a problem. No one can go to the king. No one has access to the throne. The only one who might have access would have to come uninvited. And she would have to come uninvited to the king. But at the same time, she makes for the perfect mediator because she is Persian royalty on one hand, and on the other hand, she's a Jew. And so there's hope. Could she be the mediator to mediate the Persian empire and the people of God? But you know, as you think through that, you can't help but kind of fast forward in the story, you know? Because we all need a mediator. We're, we are actually in a worse spot than the Jews were in Persia because of our sin. See, Mordecai didn't bow to Haman, but none of us have bowed rightly before God. We've all been disobedient. We've all dishonored him. We've, we've all not bowed as we should. And Haman, while he judges wickedly, God judges righteously. And so when Haman judges wickedly, he says, hey, the people of God, the Jewish people, they all must die an earthly death. But God, he judges righteously and says the payment for sin is eternal death because you can't come into heaven and stain heaven. And so it's a righteous judgment. And we look at this judgment, and here's our predicament. We can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't be the mediator ourselves because none of us have access to the throne of God in and of ourselves. We need a mediator. And you know what God does? He does what Xerxes never would do. He gets off his throne. He sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. So he's fully God, and he's fully man. So he's able to be the perfect mediator on our behalf. And we're able to make progress today because Jesus himself is our perfection. And so God, in Jesus Christ, becomes man. And he pays for our sin. He takes it all upon himself. And he rises again, defeating sin and death on our behalf so that we could be mediated. The humanity could be mediated with God. He's the perfect mediator. And so as you go to 1 Timothy 2, Paul would say it this way, there is one God and there is one mediator, Jesus Christ. Just like there was one mediator for the Jews in the kingdom of Persia, there is one ultimate mediator for all of mankind, and his name is Jesus. See, as you look at the story of Esther, you're reading a story of darkness, and it seems like, where's there any hope? Where's there any light? But as you kind of look through the words, and you kind of see where it's pointing we see that pointing to Jesus, who's a better king, a better savior. He died a better death, and he is the better mediator. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that when we were dead in our sins, when we were enemies of you, God, that you sent the perfect mediator, God-man, Jesus Christ, your son, to become sin for us so that we can be reconciled to you. God, we believe that. 
But God, may, may that belief not be merely theory. But God, may it produce action in us because we are internally convinced and convicted by this reality. So God, we want to jump. We just don't want to stay on the edge and say, yeah, that looks right. God, we want to jump into all that you have for us. And to do that, we recognize we desperately need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.